0: Sun-filled days, amazing food, incredible wine, and heart-stopping views. Lisbon has become a destination of choice for lots of good reasons.
1: Join us, Tori and Paul, two proud Portuguese-Americans, as we explore our favorite city and transport you to Lisbon
0: with love.
2: Bon dia, Paul. Bon dia, Tori. And bon dia to our listeners. Welcome back to To Lisbon With Love, a travel podcast about the beautiful city of Lisbon.
1: In our last two episodes, we talked about one of our favorite reasons to come to Lisbon, which of course, is eating all the wonderful food.
2: So much good food. Yep. And I think, you know, I think that food is a really great way to experience any culture. And in our last episode, or actually the last two episodes, We talked about the types of food that the Portuguese are famous for. We also talked about some of our favorite places to eat. We gave you some words to get you by. And of course, we were really lucky to interview João Gomes, who is this wonderful gentleman who owns this wonderful Tashka in Lisbon. And we learned what inspired him to run his family Tashka and how he has seen Lisbon change in recent years.
1: Yeah, it was great to to hear his voice again, because it just brings you back to his wonderful restaurant where you always feel very much at home. So uh, all that talk about food has uh, made us thirsty. It did. It made me thirsty. Me too. So I think in
2: this episode, we should talk about another wonderful Portuguese experience, and that is... Drinking in Lisbon. Drinking in Lisbon. So I think... We'll probably do like maybe even two episodes, I think. I think so. I think there's a lot to discuss. So I think in this episode, we'll talk about drinks, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic that are uniquely Portuguese. And then in our next episode, we're really excited because one, we'll do more drinking, but we also have a very special interview that we are really excited about.
1: Yeah, I had the uh, great honor and privilege to interview Ze Robertson, who is really one of the foremost mixologists and bartenders in all of Lisbon and in all of Portugal, and I'm really excited about being able to share that interview with everyone.
2: Yeah, so that was really great, and it was really great to see him just kind of talk about his work and talk about cocktails in Lisbon. Yep. So why don't we chat about how you can get your day started with drinks? Sure. <laughs> so we, I think, talked maybe in the first food episode about coffee, and I think it's probably worth bearing to just kind of go over that a little bit more.
1: Yeah, coffee is uh, coffee's kind of a big deal in, in Lisbon. I'd say it's rare that a meal goes by where people don't have uh, a coffee of some type.
2: Yeah. So a great way to start any morning in Lisbon is, of course, with your basic espresso in Lisbon, particularly, there's a wonderful term for it.
1: Yes, in Lisbon, certainly, if you order a café, which means coffee, you will uh, receive a an espresso. But in Lisbon, espresso is also referred to as uma bica.
2: I love that term. It's nice.
1: I do too. Yeah, kind um, of makes you feel like you're uh, you're in on everything.
2: Yeah, completely. I think if you drop bica. The restaurateurs will be very surprised and very impressed. Yep. But they'll be especially impressed if you ask them for actually one of your favorite drinks.
1: Yep. They'll be very impressed if you ask for a galon, which is a really nice beverage. It's mostly really hot milk with uh, some espresso also. It's really, uh, really yummy.
2: It is really yummy. And I just love when you order it. There's always like a look of surprise. So I think, I think if our listeners drop the word Galang, they might get like I don't know. They might be also very well regarded. Yeah. But if you're a typical American and you're looking for that big cup of coffee, you can get.
1: You would you would uh, order an Americano.
2: Yes, and so this is definitely like a big style coffee size and also very good. <laughs> You know, you don't want coffee. There's also lots of really great juice to be had.
1: Yeah, I would say most places would have uh, orange juice, which is almost always fresh squeezed. And for some reason, when you have fresh squeezed orange juice there, it's it's really amazing.
2: You know, and I find it so funny, is like whenever we see the fresh squeezed oranges, it's really, really orange. And it just makes me realize that I do not drink fresh squeezed orange juice.
1: Yeah, and and for some reason, even for freshly used orange juice, it seems more orange there. I don't know why.
2: (laughs) But it's so good. It is. So get yourself a glass of orange juice. You won't be sorry. But if you don't want juice and you prefer something uh, definitely not anywhere near the, the actual fruit spectrum of beverages, there is this really great soda in Portugal.
1: Yeah, there's a brand of soda called Sumal. That is pretty much found everywhere you go in Portugal. And the most popular style of sumal is definitely the orange or laranja in Portuguese. But they have uh, other sodas featuring other fruit as well, and and including my favorite, which is pineapple or ananas.
2: Ananas is so good. If you are walking around and you can stop by a corner store and pick yourself up some sumal, you won't be sorry. But definitely get the ananas. So good. Agreed. So now that we've, you know, set you upon your your morning, we'll definitely take care of you as you continue on your day. And I think Portugal is probably well known, or at least to me, I always associate Portugal with really great wine, which we'll talk about. But really kind of, I think, the best way to quench your thirst after a morning of walking around Lisbon is with beer.
1: Yeah, there's nothing that beats a nice uh, draft beer on a Sunny, hot day, sitting at a cafe, relaxing and enjoying the sun and the warmth and and uh, drinking a, a nice beer.
2: And so we have mentioned our favorite type of beer, our favorite brand of beer, I should say, many times in our previous episodes.
1: Are you talking about Superbock? I am talking about Superbock. Because what else would you talk
2: about? <laughs> Superbock is so good. I love Superbock, but... Hopefully we're not setting up too many high expectations.
1: Well, I you just have to know what to expect. Superbach is definitely a lager. It's I think a, a very hearty lager, but if you're the type of beer drinker who, you know, only drinks really hoppy like IPA type beers, then it probably isn't gonna be right up your alley. But it's just a perfectly thirst quenching lager beer that's delicious. It's so good.
2: It is definitely our preferred brand, but there's also other brands out there.
1: Yes, and in Portugal there are basically two main brands. One of them being Superbach and the other one being Sagadish. And in some ways, uh, Sagadish is similar. It's certainly a similar style, but it is, in my opinion, not quite as crisp and clean as Superbach. I like I like we've repeated ad nauseum. Uh, we prefer Uh It also helps that Sagrish is owned by Heineken, whereas Superbach is still owned by a Portuguese company. So that's yet another reason to like it. And, uh, but I also just think it tastes better.
2: Definitely. And if you fall in love with Superbac Bo- Super like we have, you're in luck because you can taste test your way around various styles.
1: Yes, and the the overwhelming majority of times you see Superbach, it's going to be the basic lager. It's going to be fairly rare that anyone carries anything else made by them, but it does turn out that they do make other styles. And one uh, very convenient place where you can try the different styles of Superbach is at a place called the Timeout Market. The Timeout Market is a high-end, uh, sort of sort of a high-end food court where they have a lot of different stalls from different restaurants all over Lisbon, but they also have a, a beer stand that's sponsored by Superbach where you can try out all of their different styles.
2: Yeah, it's definitely a fun place to check out. And, you know, as Paul says, it's great to be able to sample your way across um, across all that Superbock has to offer. And it's interesting because I mean, we've been going there for many years, and it seems like there is potentially a craft beer scene brewing, but there's not many options for craft beer. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, I think you're starting to see more breweries, but I think they're still not very well distributed. I would say that there probably are a few bars that specialize in beer, but they are few and far between. And outside of those bars, it's a little bit difficult to find some of the craft beers. But they are they are out there and they are growing. But I think that Lisbon is a long way off from having the kind of beer culture that let's say the United States does.
2: But we did find one place that we really liked quite a bit.
1: Yeah, there's a there's a brewery called Deutsch Corvus. It's definitely a little bit out of the way. It would take some doing to get there. You're probably not going to stumble upon it as you're wandering around. But they make very good beers, and it very much feels like an American brewery. And part of the reason for that is the owner was originally from Seattle. And really, when you go into this brewery, you almost feel like you're in the United States, to the point where they have KEXP playing over the loudspeaker. But it's very, very much like an American brewery. So there are breweries out there. Um, but, you know, if you're expecting the type of beer scene that you have in the United States where you walk into a bar and they have 30 different beers on tap, that's going to be very hard to find in Lisbon, I would say.
2: Definitely. But, again, there's always Superbac, which is
1: perfect. It's true. So perfect. So where is your favorite place to have a beer? Uh, Wherever I am. <laughs> but especially, I like in Lisbon, uh, it's really nice to sit out at a cafe, especially a cafe with a beautiful view, such as at a Miradoru or a Scenic Overlook. There are often cafes there where you can just sit out in the sun and enjoy a beer and, and take in the, the breathtaking views. Also, any of the cafes that are on the Avenida Libertad, which is another of my favorite places in Lisbon very peaceful lots of beautiful trees and fountains and beautiful tile work on the sidewalks and uh yeah any any place like that with with sun and warmth and nice things to look at it's it's all good
2: it sounds lovely i think it's probably like important to note for our listeners like if you want to go to one of these like cafes or outdoor cafes there's a couple of different sizes that you can choose from.
1: Yep. There are two, two main sizes that you'll see of draft beer. You can get a smaller draft beer. is called an Empirial, and I believe that's usually about seven ounces. So if you want sort of like a half beer, it's a really good option. Or if you just order a Kaneka, that basically means a mug, but usually uh, if you order a Kaneka, it'll be more like a large pint glass. There's also uh, once in a while you'll see like a something that's called a tulipa, which is basically a tulip glass, which tends to be sort of a medium size, sort of in between the imperial and the Kaneka. Uh That can also just sometimes be called a meru. Sounds good. I should also point out that the cafes on the Avenida can be a good a good choice to enjoy a a beer or another kind of drink at because a lot of them are what is called prepagamento which uh, as it might sound means prepayment so you'll see at a lot of these kiosks that there's a sign at the uh, at the counter where you order your beer that says prepagamento and that basically means there's no waiter service you just go up to the counter you purchase your beverage and then you bring it back to the table and where that can be especially useful is if time is of the essence if you're not even necessarily in a hurry, but if you don't want to linger too long, because Portugal is a beautiful country and it's very relaxed, but sometimes the service can be too relaxed. And if you're in a situation where waiting a long time for the waiter to bring your bill might become an issue, then you might want to find one of these kiosks again, especially at the on the Avenida, but there are other places as well, public squares and the like. Uh, So if you see prepagamento, that's what that means.
2: I think they're ready for some beer.
1: I'm always ready for some beer.
2: (laughs) But we should talk about wine because wine in Portugal is to me really, really wonderful. And, you know, I always associate Portugal with wine because one of my earliest memories as a child would be winemaking time in the fall. And I just remember, you know, I grew up in... A Portuguese community and you know all my my entire family is from San Miguel from the Azores and so Every fall I would just remember that there would be this like switch come on and we would have family members come over with big crates of grapes, and it was to make wine. And we would basically rotate from family member to family member's house. All the med would come over. They would work on kind of, you know, crushing the grapes, fermenting. You know, the wine would take weeks to ferment. The whole house smelled like it. Um, it's a really, it's a memory that I often think about in every fall when I'm walking around and I still smell, you know, grapes. I always think about winemaking in my family. And so to me, I love Portuguese wine, but I think probably why I love it so much is like I have a very strong kind of association with it. is also wonderful for wine because you can get some incredible wine at really great value.
1: Yeah it's pretty amazing how inexpensive wine can be in Lisbon. At a restaurant you can get a carafe of house wine for maybe seven euro and uh, which is remarkable you know it's what a little over eight dollars which you can't even get a glass of wine in the United States for eight dollars at a restaurant. And if you happen to be someplace where you just want to uh, get a bottle of wine at a local uh, mini mercado, a small market, you can buy a nice bottle of wine in the store for something like three euro. it's It's truly amazing. and it's and it's good quality stuff also.
2: yeah, I think what makes this so good is that there's actually a lot of indigenous grapes in Portugal, and there are a lot of grapes unique to Portugal.
1: Yeah, I think that's a reason why traditionally the Portuguese uh, wine industry has not been been well recognized throughout the world, because it tends to be very different in that a lot of places, when you buy a bottle of wine, the emphasis is going to be on the grape. You know, you're going to buy a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon, or you're going to buy a bottle of Pinot Noir, and in Portugal you almost never see that. You're you're starting to see it a little bit just because Portugal's trying to enter the world wine market on a large scale, but the overwhelming majority of wines you're going to get in Portugal are blends, and I think that that maybe confuses people or adds a layer of mystery that they're not used to, but I, I think that Avoiding Portuguese wine is a, is a disservice because they make some really good wine. So, uh, there are some indigenous grapes in Portugal that are more well-known than others. The most famous is Turiga Nacional, which is used pretty widely. It's even used in port wine, which we'll talk about port wine a little bit later. But again, it's a variety that you're, that you're going to find almost exclusively in Portugal. Now there is another uh, grape that's called Tinto which actually you can find other places, such as Spain. But in Spain, it's known as Tempranillo. Interesting. But for the most part, most of the the grapes used in Portuguese wine are are indigenous and, to a large extent, unique to Portugal.
2: Well, I am getting thirstier by the moment. I don't know about you. Yep. <laughs> so if you're in a restaurant and you're curious about Portuguese wine, there's, of course, a couple of different styles that you could try. Vinho Branco is white wine, whereas Vinho Tinto is red wine.
1: Yeah, pretty much all over the world, you're going to find your red wine and you're going to find your white wine. But in Portugal, you'll also find Vinho Verde, which mm. is green wine. But is it green? It's green, but maybe not in the way that you're thinking. So the green in this case doesn't refer to the color. It refers to the maturity, so it's a very young wine. And the overwhelming majority of Vinho Verdes are of the white wine variety, but there are red Vinho Verdes as well. These, uh, these wines are made in Minho, which is the northernmost part of Portugal. And a lot of them feature the Alvarinho grape. And it turns out that every June in Lisbon, there is a festival that celebrates Vinho Verde. And speaking of the Alvarinho grape, if you go on our website, you can see a photo that I took with a very large animated <laughs> Alvarinho grape. And I was so happy, it was one of the highlights of my trip.
2: It's a fantastic photo, and again, if you're in Lisbon in early June, be on the lookout for this festival. It's a really great time. You can taste test your way across many different uh, brands of Vinho Verde. And as Paul mentioned, it's from the Minu region, so they also sometimes have different like foods and other kind of specialties from that area. Yep. But I think what makes Portuguese wine so interesting is that there are so many wine regions in Portugal. And when you're at a restaurant and you're looking at the wine list, there's probably going to be like three that really stand out to you. And I would say like the three biggest wines that are usually represented are the wines from the Alentejo region, the Dow region, and the Douro Valley. So the Alentejo region is really quite lovely. Uh, We actually... Many, many years ago, we drove through it to uh, go to a place called Evra. It's, I don't know, how many hours do you think it is from Lisbon? Like an
1: hour or two? I would say, you know, if you have a car, I would be surprised if it was more than an hour. I think on the train it maybe took an hour and a half, maybe. Mm. I don't remember. And we'll talk
2: about Evra actually in a future episode that we'll be doing about day trips from Lisbon. But it's a great, great town, and you should definitely go check that out. But it was fun to actually drive through the Alentejo area because you'll see miles upon miles of cork trees, which is just something that I've never seen before in my
1: life. And it's just really dark, but really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, the overwhelming majority of the cork that's produced in the world is from Portugal. So it's uh, it, it truly is amazing how it's basically cork as far as the eye can see, and uh, maybe a few olive trees here and there, but mostly cork.
2: Yeah. And so that area tends to be really hot and really dry. And because of that, I think you get some really interesting wines from that.
1: Yeah, I've heard them uh, described as being similar to California wines in some oh, ways. Interesting. Yeah.
2: Huh. I think we have to do some taste testing.
1: I think we're just the people to do it.
2: <laughs> but the reds tend to be very full-bodied, very strong fruit flavors, uh, the whites are a little bit softer, but again, really, really flavorful. So if you're looking for that like very strong flavor uh, profile, you won't go wrong with an Alentejo wine. I agree. So another great area to taste from is the Dao region. And these are interesting because the Dao region has like a lot of granite soil. And so... You'll find actually that the wines are a little bit of a lighter style. They tend to be more well-balanced. People have described them as elegant, and this is where my ignorance of wine terms comes through because I don't quite know how I would describe something as elegant, but it's definitely something that you can taste that is, it feels really unique and just a very lovely experience.
1: Yeah, Douro is in the uh, central uh, part of Portugal, and I would say that For probably most of the winemaking history there, it was known for making pretty basic uh, table wines, but more recently, I think that its potential is being realized as more of a sophisticated wine region.
2: Definitely. And, you know, maybe about like 50 miles away, you have another huge wine area, although it's only... I don't know maybe like the recent few decades it's become known as an area for table wine and that is the Douro valley
1: right and the Douro valley obviously is is most famous for producing port wine but as tori mentions it definitely is now producing really nice table wines as well
2: and so the wines that you'll find here um are also pretty robust again very flavorful i think in ter- they've been described similar to a Cabernet so if you're looking kind of for that like very distinctive flavor profile this is a great style to taste and the whites tend to be you know very crisp a lot of like mineral like very much like a mineral taste to it and it's again you're not going to go wrong with any of these three styles but um, they are pretty distinctive.
1: And there are other styles in Portugal as well and you probably won't go wrong with any of them but these are (laughs) as Tori mentions the most prevalent, so at least you'll have a, uh, an exposure to the, the basic Portuguese wine styles. Definitely.
2: So as Paul mentioned, uh, the Douro Valley is really well known for its port wine. And I think if you're outside of Portugal, you'll probably think about port wine when you hear
1: Portugal. It is definitely one of the products that Portugal is most famous for without a doubt.
2: So what exactly is port wine?
1: I am so glad you asked. <laughs> this is literally of everything on earth. Probably one of one of a handful of subjects that I most like to speak about. And I'll I'll try to keep this brief, but I think that's probably a fool's errand. I don't think there's any <laughs> way I'm going to keep this brief, but you're super excited for this section, aren't you? I'm I am so excited for the <laughs> section so port wine is a fortified wine and that means that during production there is some sort of alcohol that's added to it now in this case it's a neutral grape spirit kind of think maybe like almost like an aguardent or like a, a moonshine type uh, type of uh, alcohol and originally winemakers would add this, uh, this grape spirit to the wine as a preservative. And the reason that they did that is that a lot of the wine that was made in the Douro Valley would eventually make its way to England. And the reason that it would be sent to England is that going many, many hundreds of years back, in fact, all the way to the 1300s, Portugal and England have been allies. They signed a, what they called a Treaty of Perpetual Friendship in the 1300s, and that treaty still remains in force today, making England and Portugal the longest alliance in the history of the world. And obviously there are places that are closer to England that make wine, but the most prevalent of those is France. And the problem is that England would get into a lot of wars with France. And once you're in a war with them, it's harder to get wine there.
2: That's not good.
1: No. You but, want your wine. Right. So, which is why they would get some wine from Portugal. Now, the problem with getting the wine from Portugal is it's a long journey. You've got the Douro Valley, which is well inland. You know, you make the wine, you chip it in wooden casks on these these barcurebellus, these wooden boats that try to shoot the rapids in the river and and get to the coast, then you got to sail up to England, then you got to put it on, you know, wagons or what have you, horse-drawn wagons, and bring it to wherever it's going in in England. Now, all this takes a long time, and summers are hot, and the wine would go bad, which is why they would add some booze to it, kind of to preserve it, because alcohol is a preservative. The problem with that Is that it made it not really taste all that good which you know if it's the only wine you can get okay then it's better than nothing but in general it's not going to be your preferred wine so basically Portugal was sort of a backup wine market for England for many hundreds of years until roughly the early 1700s when a couple of things happened that changed the port wine scene forever One was that a treaty was enacted between England and Portugal, another treaty called the Methuen Treaty, and this resulted in lower tariffs. So, basically, uh, there were lower tariffs on the, the textiles being imported into Portugal from England, and there were lower tariffs on the wine being imported into England from Portugal. Around that same time, someone discovered a, a monastery somewhere deep in the heart of the Douro Valley where they were producing wines that were much better than most of the wines that were being sent to England. And it turns out that the reason that these wines were better is that instead of making the wine and then adding the booze to preserve it, uh, the, the people, the monks, I suppose, at the monastery who were making the wine decided to add the spirit while the wine was still fermenting. And it turns out that this made all the difference. Who knew? Well, it's funny. That's, it's, it, that's a funny question because we, to this day, don't know whether they <laughs> did it on purpose or if it was totally an accident. Like they added it, they thought it was done fermenting, and they just added it, or if they actually decided to experiment, or if they actually thought it was a good idea. Can you imagine if it was an accident? Like what a happy accident. It's true, yeah. So regardless of of why the change happened, the change happened. And the reason it was such a good change has to do with the nature of fermentation itself. So do you know what fermentation is? (laughs)
2: Let's see. I I didn't realize (laughs) there was going to be like a little science quiz here. Fermentation is when yeast eats up sugar. Is that right?
1: Correct. So yeast fermentation very simply uh, described is yeast consuming sugar and converting it into alcohol I love science in in this case science helps us (laughs) actually in most cases science helps us I would say almost all cases but yeah so when you're making wine you have your grape juice so you take your grapes you squeeze them you get juice you introduce yeast and the yeast makes the alcohol now, if you're making a regular table wine, you're going to introduce the yeast, and the yeast is going to eat all of the sugar that's naturally occurring in the grape juice, and turn it all to alcohol, and that's it. Now, what that means is, because this happens, if you notice, really, wine is not very sweet, because the yeast has consumed all the sugar. However, when you dump a bunch of booze into the wine as it's fermenting, what happens to the yeast? Well, the same thing that happens when you dump a bunch of booze into yourself. <laughs> you, it's, you know, it's bed, it's bedtime. It's via dormir here. And uh, the yeast is going to stop working. So what does that mean? Well, for one thing, you've just dumped a bunch of booze into the wine, so it's going to be very strong. But you've also done so before the yeast has consumed all the sugar, which is why... Port wine is so sweet, so by doing it this way, you got a really yummy sweet wine that was also high in alcohol, and everyone loved it. And this changed this changed everything. And once the uh, the British merchants who had been importing the wine into uh, England got got word of this, everybody started making it this way, and the port wine trade boomed. And you'll notice even to this day that many of the famous port wine producers have English names. You've got Taylor Fladgate, Sandman, Grams, Ware, Dow. So you've got all these English producers who are now sending this really good, really popular wine to England. And everybody was really happy and, you know, the people in Portugal who are making the wine and selling it to the British, you know, they're happy. The British are happy. They're making a lot of money. Everybody's happy.
2: I feel like something terrible is about to come on.
1: Well, unfortunately, it's sort of the nature of, of capitalism where if people start making a lot of money, other people want to make money too. And they might, do, they might try to do so using more like unscrupulous means. So what you started getting, with all these people making all this money, is people entering the market, basically flooding the market with inferior products. You know, maybe they're not going to use grapes that are as good. Maybe they're not going to use grapes at all. Maybe they're going to, you know, cut it with something like, you know, elderberry juice. Elderberry? Yeah, I don't really know what elderberries (laughs) are. But what I do know is from like Monty Python and the Holy Grail when, you know, he's like, your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries, which it seems like an insult. So I'm guessing elderberries don't smell good, which means they probably don't taste good either.
2: Sounds like a bad idea.
1: Yeah. So basically, when you have all these shysters kind of trying to make a quick buck, they're A, they're flooding the market. B, they're ruining the good name of Port because they're putting out inferior products. And all of a sudden, the market starts collapsing. So what did Portugal do? Well, the, the port producers complained to the king of Portugal at the time that, like, hey, you know, we were making a lot of money and now we're not. You know, help us out here. So what did the king of Portugal do? Well, that's an excellent question. Have you ever seen the movie Pulp Fiction? Of course I have. Right. So there's that scene where, you know, they, they had to really, uh, there was a problem that they really needed to solve, you know. Poor Marvin in the in the back seat there, you know, bad things happen and all of a sudden there's a big problem that they needed to solve. So, you know, they call their boss, Marcellus, and what does Marcellus do? Marcellus calls in the wolf, the right? Wolf. The wolf comes in and he like fixes everything.
2: Are you telling me that there was a wolf of Portugal?
1: In a sense, yes. So, when the king had a problem in the mid-1700s, he decided to call in his version of the wolf. And that man was named Sebastiao José de Carvalho y Melo.
2: Sounds scary.
1: Have you ever heard of this person? No. But I'll bet you have, because he went by a more common name, which is the Marquege de Pumbal.
2: Oh, tricky.
1: So the Marques de Pombal is very famous in Portuguese history, and he very rightfully is famous for having a very big uh, statue in Lisbon that we'll talk about a little bit later. But he had become well-known in Portugal as the king's right-hand man after the devastating earthquake of 1755. When the earthquake happened, and we've mentioned this this event before, it was one of the one of the more important and obviously horrible uh, events in Portuguese history. It was a massive earthquake. It's estimated that it was like nine on the Richter scale. It caused a tsunami. The whole of downtown Lisbon was destroyed. So the king assigned the Marquês de Pombal the task of rebuilding downtown Lisbon. And he did this in many ways. The, the first thing he did was he decided, well, if there was one earthquake, there could be another one. So when we rebuild these buildings, we should do it in a way that they're earthquake-resistant. And these were really, like, the first specifically earthquake-resistant construction techniques ever used. And it spawned a whole new type of architecture, which is named after him, the Pumbaline style. And what he did was he used, as support beams in the building, he actually used these cross, so these cross beams that were kind of like X's. Rather than using a vertical beam from floor to ceiling, he would use these X's. And they were designed to, to withstand the shocks of earthquakes. And a lot of the buildings that were built at that time after the earthquake are still standing in Lisbon. And you can see this, this Poombaline style. And one very prevalent example, if you're in downtown Lisbon, and if you're walking down the Rua Augusta, which you probably will, it's a pedestrian-only, very wide street that runs from the Rossio, which is the main square, down underneath the arch and to the Praça do Comercio near the river. There's cafes and restaurants everywhere and stores. Well, one of the stores is the sort of fan shop of the soccer club Sporting Lisbon. So sporting is one of the two major soccer teams in Lisbon, along with Benfica. Sporting is the one that wears green. And if you happen to pass their, their store, if you look in, you can actually see these wooden crossbeams that were part of the original building that were used, you know, to withstand earthquakes. And these, this architecture was sort of tested by, they would build scale models and they would have uh, soldiers with heavy boots like march around them to, to simulate like the, the ground. Um, so it was all very, very complex. And another thing that Marques de Pombal did was because the whole downtown was destroyed, he, he decided that when it was rebuilt, it should be rebuilt on a grid. Now, this was one of the first sort of planned type downtowns of a city in Europe, Europe being obviously very old, people had come up with this idea that a city should be laid out on a grid because it'll be better for traffic flow, etc. But uh, it, not, it had not really been tested too much in Europe, so this was a golden opportunity. So anyway, this whole rebuilding of the city, Marques de Pombal did a phenomenal job, which is why, to this day, there's a huge statue at the top of the Avenida de la Libertad uh, large, you know, traffic circle, or rotary as they're called in Massachusetts, with a really high, uh, column with this big statue of the Marquis de Pumbal standing next to a lion looking down the avenue at the Baisha, which is the part of Lisbon that was rebuilt after the earthquake that he oversaw. So those was a very long-winded, uh, explanation of Marquis de Pombal, but it explains why he became the king's right-hand man.
2: He sounds, well, he is very impressive.
1: Yes, and he's impressive not only because of his work in rebuilding Lisbon, but also his work in saving the port wine industry. So as mentioned before, the port shippers were getting undercut and their Their prophets were going out the window, so they complained to the king. And the king said, I'm going to call in the wolf. So he, you know, you can almost picture him talking to Marques de Pumbal, and he's got, like, his little notebook, and he's writing in big block letters, you know, like uh, elderberries or what have you. And you can almost picture him saying, it's a 30-hour journey to Porto. I'll be there in 10, you know. But he, like, goes up, and he, like, he immediately lays down the law. He, like, he gets to Porto, he's like, okay, first of all, we're only using grapes. We're not using any of these elderberries or anything else. And we're only using these certain types of grapes. These these few varieties are all that can be used in port wine. And not only that, these grapes have to be from a very specific, very uh, high-quality uh, vineyard region uh, along the, the Douro Valley. And... He went so far as to hire people, not only did he map it out on a map, but he hired people to put up stones that demarcated on the actual land where the port wine could come from. So anything inside of those stones would be eligible to be used to make port wine. So
2: this is this like one of the first demarcated areas for, for alcohol?
1: It is indeed. There's some controversy as to which was actually the first, but it was absolutely one of the very first uh, demarcated wine-growing regions. Now, some of the more famous wine-growing regions, such as the ones in France, like Bordeaux or Champagne, those came about a hundred years later. So, the de Poumbal did this. He also set up the the Institute of Port Wine, which was charged with making sure that the wines that were exported from there were of high quality. And that organization still exists today, where if you want to declare a vintage port, it has to be approved by this this government body. So basically, Marques de Pombal single-handedly went up and saved the port wine industry.
2: That is pretty incredible. I mean, I knew that he, you know, was important to Portugal for a lot of really good reasons, but I didn't I don't think I realize like the depth that he uh, contributed to Portugal's economy, their history. He's the guy.
1: Yeah, he was he was pretty amazing.
2: And I feel like if there was ever a movie about him, you should play the Marquês de Pombal.
1: I think I could do that, although I think I'm allergic <laughs> to lions, so I don't know if they would have to oh. have somebody else pose oh. for the statue. <laughs>
2: I am definitely even more thirsty now, and I would love some port, and I think it's important to note that there are a couple of different styles of port to choose from.
1: That's true. First of all, not everyone is aware that not only is there red port, but there's also white port. Now, white is definitely not as prevalent, but you will see white port consumed in Portugal a decent amount, and people will drink it on its own as an aperitif, often uh, somewhat chilled. And they will also use it in a cocktail called a Porto Tonico.
2: I love Porto Tonico's.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's just white port and tonic water. It's actually a pretty good alternative if you are in the mood for something with tonic water, but if you are not feeling gin that day, uh, Porto Tonico is really refreshing again, especially on a hot day, and uh, it's, it's worth checking out. So what other styles of port can you get? Well, the majority of ports that are made are red, and there are two styles of red port. There are rubies and tawnies. Now, there are very many uh, sub-styles underneath these styles, but what delineates ruby from tawny is how long it's been aged in wood. So rubies are wines that have spent relatively little time aging in wooden casks. They tend to be fruitier and sort of a darker red color, and there are several different styles within ruby, besides your basic ruby, which is a wine that would be aged in a very, very large wooden vat so that very little of the wine would ever come into contact with the wood. And when I'm saying large, I'm saying, like, you could swim in it, that that large. And if you're going to just make a basic ruby, you're going to age it in there for a few years and bottle it. Then you've got Reserve, which is another style, which is a higher-end ruby, where you age the wine a little bit longer and, and you blend from different years. Then you've got Vintages and Late Bottle Vintage. Now, Vintage is the most famous and probably the the most sought after style of port. Vintage ports are only made in years where there were exceptional growing conditions. And as I mentioned earlier, when you make a vintage port you actually have to get it approved so that you can declare the vintage. And these are aged for two years in a wooden cask and then bottled, unfiltered, and the wine continues to get better in the bottle. Now, sort of a, a, a spinoff of that style, if you will, is a late bottled vintage, where maybe if the growing conditions weren't quite as good as a vintage year, but the the wines will be aged for a few more years and then bottled. And so you're going to get maybe a similar sort of flavor profile, but not as spectacular as a vintage. Now, on the other side, Antony's are that have been aged in wood more often. These tend to be lighter in color and maybe a little bit more of like a nutty flavor, maybe a, a raisin type flavor. And the reason for that is twofold. When uh, tawnies are made, they tend to be transferred to smaller casks where more of the wine comes into contact with the wood and obviously it's aged for longer. So you get more of the influence of the wood on the wine, and wood is porous, which means that it's not airtight, which means that that the uh, the wine does get some oxidation, and all of this combines for a, de- a very different flavor profile in a tawny than you would get in a ruby. And again, there are substyles within tawny. You have your basic tawny, which was probably aged in wood. I don't know six years or so. And then you have your age tawnies, which usually have a, 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 an age statement. So you have a 10-year a tawny or a 20-year tawny or a 30 or a 40. And those are blends of different wines where the average age in the blend is whatever is indicated by the age statement. So a 10-year tawny, it's an average of 10 years old. Then you have my very favorite style of port, which is called Colietta which is a tawny port so it's been aged in wood but it's all from one year and that will have a year listed on the label so you it will say 1987 colietta and i find these to have like a really amazing uh character and they're very unique and i, I really enjoy those
2: so it's so funny when i first started drinking port wine I definitely gravitated to the rubies because they were just so sweet and, you know, it was just pure sugar. But the tannies are so good, and I highly recommend, if you can, to try a tawny or a because uh, they're just so interesting and, you know, really complex and uh, very, very
1: flavorful. Yeah, I would say that when I first started drinking port wine as an adult, I definitely would get more of the, the reserve wines, but definitely on the ruby side, the fruitier, sweeter uh, wines. But you notice I said, as an adult, <laughs> I, I've actually been drinking port wine in Porto or in Vilanova de Gaia, across the river from Porto, where all of the port shippers have their their wine cellars, their caves, if you will. Uh, I've been going on tours of, of those places since I was probably 10 years old and like they didn't care like if you were on the tour they would give you port. so and, th- and the funny thing is when I was younger, I actually preferred the white ports really? and especially the dry white ports really I can't figure out why because I mean I liked candy like anybody else. I don't I don't know, yeah, I have never been able to figure that out. But yeah, I always liked I always liked the wow. dry white ports as a little kid, but now so sophisticated I, for a 10-year-old well, or a kid, I should say. I guess.
2: <laughs> Do you have a particular brand that you like or a particular port that you really love?
1: Um, I would say that maybe it depends a little bit on on the style. For the aged tawnies, I think Ramos Pinto makes really good aged tawnies. They're probably the gold standard, in my opinion, of 20-year tawny. For colietas, often at the duty-free store in the Lisbon airport, you'll see Kupka, which actually is the rare German uh, port producer. I believe they might be the oldest port producer uh, of all those still in existence, but uh, yeah, they make really nice colietas. But in terms of white port, What's really interesting is there's a company called Dalva which makes very well aged white ports which almost nobody else in the market does. Now, anyone from America, you might not have heard of Dalva because they're not really distributed in the United States, but you can find their ports in Portugal and they'll do like an aged white port or even like a white colheita. That might, be, that might have spent 30 or 40 years in wood, where it spent so much time in wood that it's actually gotten darker and it almost looks like a tawny red port and almost tastes like a tawny red port in a lot of cases, and it's truly remarkable.
2: Yeah, if you have the chance, you should definitely take a trip up to Porto and check out all of the different wine caves. It's not a day trip from Lisbon. You know, it's definitely something that you want to go and do an overnight stay and probably a couple of nights. Probably, yeah. But it's well worth it if you have enough time in Portugal to be able to do both cities. It is quite the experience. So this has been a really great episode, I, I think. I feel like I've learned quite a lot about port wine and all the different wine styles out there. And if you're really interested in port wine and want to learn more, I would recommend you go visit For the Love of Port. It's a website and a Facebook page run by Roy Hirsch, who is a really well-known port expert in the U.S. And Roy has tons of really great information on his website. And if you follow him on Facebook, he makes you thirsty practically every single day. So that's it for this episode our next episode uh will continue drinking and we are really excited because we'll be talking about cocktails in lisbon and as we mentioned before we're really excited because we're going to have a fantastic interview with za robertson of Cinco lounge thank you everyone até já
1: até logo <laughs> Thanks for listening to To Lisbon with Love with your hosts, Paul Barracuro
0: and Tori Costa. For more information on all the places and things that we've mentioned in this episode, visit twolisbonwithlove.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, where we share photos of everything that the beautiful city of Lisbon has to offer.
1: Unless otherwise noted, all music on To Lisbon with Love was recorded live at Duke de Rua, a wonderful faldu bar featuring live music five nights a week just steps up from the Rousiu in the heart of Lisbon. Visit our friends there and let them know that we sent you.
0: Are you enjoying To Lisbon with Love? If so, please subscribe, rate us, and share with your friends. Is there something about Lisbon that you're dying to know about? Send an email to Love at gmail.com and let us know. Obrigada.
1: Obrigado.